it was really important for me to learn that I, it's going to, it's hard. So I, you know, the nice, the thing that's so uh, seductive about any addiction is that you feel like you're escaping and that's, you know, who, who doesn't want to escape? I mean, life is so hard sometimes. And I, I guess I, I don't think escape is possible, but I think freedom is. So it, as a, I, I sort of lowered my bar that it was going to be hard and I was going to be really as easy as I could on myself about that. So I do things like when the shit hits the fan, I get really kind to myself, kind of, you know, like, why are you buying yourself flowers, Judy? You know, you just, the house burned down or something. And I, because I I realize it's tough and I don't want to have to use a substance to comfort myself. I want to use things that really do comfort me and fresh flowers happen to be one of those things. So um, it's going to be hard. Be, treat yourself as well as you possibly can. And um, I also, part of that for me is, is having a community of people who I can be honest with. Hello, and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Yay, welcome. Sorry, that might have been a bit loud in your ears, but hello, wonderful to meet you. Hi, hope you're doing well. Hope your day's been fantastic. Happy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yay! Sorry. Well, today's wow. Wednesday. That was a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. sorry, we'll, we'll tone it down now. It's a bit too Walt Disney, right? We'll, we'll be more normal now, sorry. Um, I uh, just wanted to say, I have been having the most crazy dreams of late, like every night in a row. And you were talking to you earlier, yeah. Dave, and you've been having the same. And I'm wondering if it's something we're eating. Yeah, maybe maybe you could let us know and send us a message if you are too. Because the last three weeks, I've been like, every night it's been like, even even when I'm kind of semi-conscious, I'm having mad trippy dreams. Yeah. What's happening I'm dreams? waking up stressed. You know what I mean? I'm not stressed in the day at all. But then I'll wake up in the middle of the night and it's like I've been trying to run or something. It's like I've been trying to do something in my dream and I wake up and I'm like, this is not relaxing at all. <laughs> I've started writing them down. Um, like really? Dream- you have a yeah. little dream journal? Uh, well, I just have an out on my phone and I just write it in that that's when I wake good, up. that's because then you're looking at blue light. No, but it's only when I wake up in the morning. I, I like first thing what I'll do is I'll keep in my head when I'm lying in bed and then I'll get up and just write it down straight away. Because at least good. then I don't have to, the pen and paper just lose them or then I don't know where they are. And do you read, do you read back? Do you like- no, but maybe I will someday when I'm psychoanalyzing why I'm mad. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? And do you have any like epiphanies in these dreams as your um, greatest moments? No, you? but I was learning. I was learning recently that like your dreams, REM stage of sleep is the deep state of sleep where all your kind of memories are formed. And what your brain does is it layers memories on top of other memories. So like, you know, some memory which you might have might be layered on another one. And that's why your dreams can often be super trippy because it can be like one memory from 10 years ago and one memory from five years ago, and one memory from recently. And they're all layered and you're going through this maze of crazy coopiness. That makes Possibly. so much sense for my dreams of late because I've had ex-boyfriends come into it. I've been skiing in some of them and I haven't skied in years. I've had like loads of... I had a dream last night there was an extra part of Greystones that I'd never discovered and there was a mosque in it. Oh, <laughs> can I go there? Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. But um, Steve, I've got a feeling that you're the type of person who doesn't dream that you just hit the bed and then you're out cold. All your kids could come in jumping on your head and you wouldn't even notice. Yeah, I don't like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Steve does all his dreaming when he's awake. Yeah, Shawnee that's what Shawnee says. saying. Um, Ned, Ned comes in a lot, pretty much every night into our bed, and Ned has a habit of liking. Who's Ned? Is Ned? Ned's my five-year-old. Okay, Ned. <laughs> <laughs> Ned, Ned is my five-year-old. 
Um, Justine and my wife fed him, breastfed him for two years. So he was, and he used to fall asleep in the the breast. So he was used to having this really close physical contact. So when Ned comes into our bed, he likes to like literally sleep on your face or sleep like there there's, nearly has to be human contact all the time. So it's beautiful. And at the same time, like you're woken loads. Like Justina calls him a fish because he's flapping around the bed Aww. most of the night. But it's at the same time, it's adorable. Like, I but just don't love you it. sometimes end up in the bed with him? Ah, regularly <laughs> I fall asleep. Like Justina just got fed up because I'd go in and read with him and just she'd, she'd go in at 11 o'clock and I'd be fast asleep, cuddled up. Right beside Ned, just... Oh, that's yeah. But de- so, definitely the topic of sleep. Recently, we've been starting clocking our sleep, like actually recording it, you know, using a device to track it. And I've never done this before and I was always against it because I thought, oh, track and sleep, that's like just going to put pressure on me Quantify to sleep better. your life. But yeah. I've been doing it now three weeks and I, f- I really find it great. I'm so surprised because I was so resistant and I used to poo Do you go to bed early? What Like what way does it have? You know? um, no, it tracks all your sleep and gives you a sleep score and it gives you your, you know, the quality and the amount of time you spent on REM and deep and light. Do you think it's accurate? I think it is pretty accurate because the few times I have kind of been a little later sleep, it's caught me. And a couple of times where I've woken up later, it's got like, it's pretty good, but it's, it holds me accountable because I think I, I think I used to think I was always getting eight hours sleep. And then when you look at it, you, like there's probably a good 10% of the time you're awake, which you don't realize. And I didn't realize you're awake somewhere between 10 and 30 times a night, but you wake up, but you don't actually know that you are. You, you might see, register only once that you are awake I'd be or twice. scared to have that because then it would make me more aware of how bad my sleep is. Like I remember someone was like, read that Matthew Walker book. The sleep book. Yeah. And that just gave me the willies because I was just so scared of, well, I don't want to know how bad it is for me that I don't sleep properly Ignorance all the time. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Just <laughs> funny to be wise. But, yeah. but I, I thought the same, but I, I'm finding it really good because it really makes me prioritize and it really makes me kind of mm. go, this is so important. And it's it makes me not like just take it for granted. It's like, oh, I love sleep. The, I, the you other know side, I'm so the, good. The other side is that when you wake up, you're kind of waiting for that sleep score to land. And you're like, oh, I hope it did well. I hope it did well. Yes, <laughs> I, passed, I, passed, yes, you know. I got an 80. Woo! <laughs> In my over, you know, productive life, I'm kind of like trying to produce a good night's sleep, which, you know. That's pretty good though. So. I mean, well, we can talk all about health we want, but at the yeah. end of the day, sleep is, what yeah. do they say, where all sleep the healing is, happens. We have the opportunity to go to the best clinic in the world every single night. And it's dun, free. Dun, dun, dun. Amazing. Okay. Should we talk about the podcast? What we're going to talk no, about? No, no. So? I want to uh, just mention something that we have coming up soon. Something oh. very exciting. Very and it really exciting. is. This is actually class. And it also affects your sleep. Yeah, oh, it really does. Lovely. So this is on... February the 28th, we are starting a sober March, we're calling it. So it's literally starting February the 28th. It's an alcohol free That rhymes really well, Dave. Sober March. Yeah, it's like a sober March. You're marching into sober March. Woo! Do you get it? Uh, <laughs> but it's a four week course. We're doing it with our friend Andy Ramage. He literally wrote the book, The 28 Day Alcohol Free Challenge. Uh, which was a bestseller. He's and helped 100,000 people reestablish their relationship with alcohol. Yeah. And really, it's a good opportunity to kind of, like, I didn't realize how much, like, we gave, gave up alcohol 20 years ago, not because we wanted to just absolutely by chance. And it was one of the greatest catalysts for our own health. And I, because we've been off drink for so long, I forget how much of a barrier it can be to implementing some of the other, other good habits like sleep and eating more vegetables and things like My that. My favorite thing when you guys talk about alcohol and the benefits of you giving up is that you're stuck still in that like when you drank when you're in your 20s. So your comparisons are based around teenage drinking <laughs> and not like, I'm like, yeah, well, when I stopped drinking alcohol is because, you know, I would find that like my weekends vanish. You guys, well, you, you you know, used to start drinking on a Monday and then it'd be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'm like, no, that, that's when you're in college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we were like 21. So we were total teenagers. Yeah. Anyway, but that that's that's really cool. 28 day, day alcohol free challenge. You'll find it more on our website, uh, thehappypair.e or um, we'll put a link for it somewhere here. 
Well, yeah, You'll find somewhere. it there, anyway. Uh, anyway, let's talk about today's guest, the wonderful Dr. Judy Grissel. Uh, she's amazing. She's Her kind of speciality is in the field of addiction. It's an amazing conversation. I'm so excited to chat to her, really. It's something that, although many people think of addiction, we think of it drugs, we think of it of like hard drugs. So many of us are addicted to so many aspects of life, whether it be social media, whether it be phone usage, whether it be chocolate, chocolate alcohol. There's, it's just... So much, and I think addiction is pervasive in every aspect of society. And I think this conversation was a great reflection for me just on the topic of like, what do I turn to when I start feeling a bit down or start yeah. feeling a little mm. bit? And just to give you a context about Ju- Judy, she's a pharmacologist and a neurologist. And she says herself, she's been studying addiction for 40 years. The first 10 as an addict herself. She was an alcoholic and addicted to cocaine for the first kind of from the age of 13 to 23. And then she really took a turn and decided that she really wanted to understand. She wanted to become a doctor because she wanted to try to find a cure to addiction. Yeah, and she spent the last 30 years as a neurologist and a pharmacologist and really digging, deep diving into addiction and what are the causes. And she really is inspiring. She's got such an insightful view on things because she she knows that as a user, as a practitioner, and then also as a the science and the reality and how the brain functions. So this is a great conversation. I really hope you take something from it. Please share it on Instagram stories if you like this, because we'd love to spread the word and get this out to more people. And uh, yeah, we'll just share it if you put it in your stories. Yeah. Wishing you a good podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great podcast. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Enjoy. (laughs) One thing, one thing, Judy, I'd love to, am I okay calling you Judy or Judith? Because I've heard you. Judy's great. Okay, I love Judy. Yeah, I think that's a lovely, lovely, lovely name. Uh, Judy, there was, um, I, I remember listening to someone talk about the opposite to addiction was connection. Many people think the opposite to addiction is sobriety or, you know, uh, whatever it is, ab- abstinence. But I love the concept. I think it was Johan Harry. Yeah, it was Johan Harry was the one that said it. And he was kind of saying that the opposite to addiction was connection. And I just wonder what are your thoughts on this? Because to me, it really resonated and makes a lot of sense. Because if you are feeling connected, surrounded by a community, you're you're feeling maybe uh, like kind of more level in your kind of homeostasis as opposed to up and down, up and down, up and this type of thing. Well, yeah. And I also think, I, so I completely agree. And I think that um, addiction itself is a process of alienation from ourselves, from our communities, from our dreams, from our families. So it's, it is the antidote, but it's not easy. I mean, I think that's what substance use disorders do. They make us, you know, withdraw into ourselves and our own little habits and uh, make the world real small. So, yeah, I agree. So it's it's almost like, you know, it's not even connection because if you are on that journey of just pulling into yourself, it's, you know, there could be any number of people trying to draw you out of yourself, but ultimately it's not until you want to roll down the drawbridge again and go, hey, I'm, I want to come connect with other people. Yeah, but you're also so alienated from yourself. So that's, I think, the rub that it's not even that you recognize it. It's just, I, I know that um, by the time I got sober, I, I felt like a shell. You know, there was nothing. I didn't even have the faintest idea who I was, what I cared about, what was true for me at all, because that was all kind of hollowed out. So I, I do think... Um, you know, and, and getting to know ourselves, especially as teens, is tough anyway. But I think um, substance use disorders really exacerbate that. Wow. And even on that topic, could you talk about like, because I know like you were 13 and you weren't from when people think of, OK, if someone's going to become 
a substance abuser at the age of 13, you might go, oh my God, you must have been like, had a really tough kind of, you know, background or upbringing in many different ways. But like what I've read about your upbringing, it doesn't seem like you were on the streets and, you know, your parents weren't, you know, drug addicts or, you know, unemployed or that type of thing. Not that that's the case, but could you talk about your own experience? Because it's so insightful. Yeah. So I would say that having adverse childhood experiences is a big predictor. Um, so, and I, I don't think on the scale of things and it can, nobody's childhood's perfect. Mine were so bad. Although my parents were miserable, they really were miserable in their marriage. They had no way. My, my mother was very Catholic. So there was no way out of that. And um, they were very, insecure, I think, individually. So there was a lot of, for me, there was a lot of um, disconnect between what I saw and kind of deep down knew to be true. And then the way we talked about it. So I think what that did was kind of coming back to the alienation. It made me um, realize like there, my experience and what we're pretending is going on are two different things. So therefore drugs were kind of a welcome antidote, but the other big factor. So beside um, adverse childhood experiences, uh, most of the explanation for how people start using young, which is the major um, catalyst for developing a substance use disorder. Most of it is what they call random noise this is so depressing for statisticians and behavior genetics people and anybody who wants to understand how human behavior evolves. But it is the case that some, you know, experience in the lunchroom in eighth grade or, you know, um, something that happens behind the barn, you know, those kinds of things are big predictors. So what, you know, was kind of, I was a little bit, likely to take risks. And when I was offered the opportunity to drink, I kind of thought, what the heck? And I certainly didn't expect the profound experience I had. This is right around the time of my 13th birthday, but it was, um, you know, probably found fertile ground in the kind of trying to cope with the disconnect in my family and um, psychological life and just the disconnect in every 13 year old girl on the planet, probably. So uh, I was off to the races there. And how did it actually, how did it actually happen? Was it like, did you find, did you just take a drink from your parents' cabinet or? Well, no, I had, I was at a girlfriend's house. So my parents' cabinet was pretty well watched. My parents were pretty on top of things, but I was at a girlfriend's house and her parents had a basement full of booze. And, um, she said, you know, hey, we should try some. And I thought, yeah, let's try some. And it was a half a gallon of wine. So, you know, I don't know what that would be, but over That's a two liter. Yeah, you know, maybe two liters. liters. And I am sure I got more than my share because that was my tendency always and probably still is. So I we just guzzled this wine and it was fantastic. I I um it it hit me like a warm um, nurse, you know, that was soothing all my, all my anxieties, all my insecurities, all my cares. And I really felt like 
this is the trick. This is how people get through life. Because even though my life wasn't that bad, as you say, you know, every teenager, I guess, has a fair amount of angst. And I, I felt that alcohol was the perfect solution. And I remember after we drank the whole thing and hid the bottle, we went up to her bedroom and opened up the window. It was winter time, And I was hanging my head out the window, just looking at the stars, thinking, I got it now. This is great. It was, uh, it was like filling the hole in my soul. I think other people say the same thing. So it was really great. And I, I think that may be different for people who have a predisposition, which again, could also be related to um, genetics, but uh, stress and genetics. So it sounds sounds like almost liberating. As soon as you had that drink, it was just like, oh, the noise, the noise in my head is gone. This emptiness is filled. I feel complete. I found the source of joy. Totally liberating. Exactly. I, I, after I had the drink, I felt like I was a racehorse in the gate, you know, forever. And then all of a sudden the gate flew open and I was out, you know, and that is the feeling I had. Absolutely. And from then on, was it just like drink whenever you could get it? That was it. This is my key to feeling more myself. 13, that's hard. Well, it wasn't that hard. You know, parents, cabinets and, um, you know, and immediately I, as is often the case, I picked up every other thing I could get. So I ended up for about 10 years taking as many mind altering substances as I could get my hands on. And I just never said no. I, even the things that I thought, well, you know, I probably won't do that. But the minute I got the opportunity, I was like, okay, sure. So um, it was a kind of all or none response. And um, that is also sort of typical. So I kind of lost my reason. And we would, um, you know, get alcohol any way we could. And in fact, the first time I got served at a, at a package store, I think was later that year. So I was only 13. Wow. I put a little mascara on and I went in. This was, you know, the 70s. So people were a little more relaxed about it than they are today. But in the US, that's, you know, unheard of today. I don't know how it is in Ireland. Probably not quite so extreme. Yeah, no, I don't think 13 or 14. No way. Jeez, that's early. Yeah, like we've kids. My, my eldest daughter is 11. And Dave's eldest is 11 too. So it's, you think, two years in the but future. I, I think back to us in the, in the we early 80s, we, we would eight, have been 14, 15 and we would have been hanging outside the off-license asking someone to go in for us. You know, that would have been our tactic of getting a big brother or sister, oh, yeah. or someone who we knew and we'd give them a couple of euro and that was when we were starting. Or even it was jungle juice. We used to literally, when mom and dad were out, we'd take a little bit of each of their, um, and you, some people used to call it a dolly mixture, a little bit of each and every one of the spirits. And then you'd put in Baileys in the middle and it was all curdle and it was just the most vile thing ever. And you'd literally drink it to get drunk. And I remember sitting with my granny and granny would go, don't say you're going out to get drunk. Say now you're going to have a good time and you're going to have a few drinks. Because going out to get drunk, that's, you know, there's a problem there. There was a problem there and I didn't get it. I thought, no, I'm going to get drunk, Granny. I'm going to get pissed. That's what we'd always say in Ireland. And that's, that was the fun in it. So it sounds quite similar in your approach towards alcohol. But then we turned at 21, we ended up giving it up for two weeks and that was 20 years. So our, our behavior shifted. You know, we, I guess, I don't know. It just. What motivated that? Um, I think it was, 
I think it was realizing like the seed had probably been planted years before because we had started, you know, we kind of started getting a little healthier and being more curious about health. And I realized that I'd go, I'd save up and I'd go out and spend 50 euro on alcohol, but then I wouldn't spend three euro in a pack of blueberries the next day. So it just seemed so out of proportion. And then I had all these, at the time I was playing semi-pro golf and I, I didn't realize that, you know, it just was inhibiting my dreams. And I guess we ended up training for a marathon. We were two weeks before before the marathon, we hadn't really trained. So we just said, maybe let's give up for two weeks and eat a little more brown rice and be a little healthier. And then I felt good. And then Steve said, do you want to just keep doing it till Christmas? And that was two months. And then, then there was no going back. Like we didn't, we didn't mean to, but it just, it just happened. I mean, actually was for 21. That's really fabulous. Yeah. I think when we realized, when we, when we realized like alcohol was the main gateway to meet girls and that was, we went to an all boys school. So 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 it was the main, you kind of had, sorry, it was the main thing to just get us over ourselves. And then when we realized you could talk to girls during the day, then we realized, oh my God, this is sustainable, Steve. Like we, this could happen. Like this is, wow. But I do think a lot of people eventually, maybe not quite so young, realize exactly what you said, that the cost isn't worth it and the benefits are kind of diminishing. And so there, there is the point for many of us that we kind of step back and think, wow, is this really adding to my well-being or not? And I think, you know, if you, especially if you could meet girls other ways, then maybe not. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think part of it for me was almost like I felt there was a better version of myself there and the alcohol was albeit it was racy and exciting and I, I felt like I was part of something taking it as soon as I kind of moved beyond it I knew it gave more room for me to blossom you know the way almost you know, without sounding too metaphorical or trying to make it sound poetic but really that's what it was ultimately I felt as soon as I gave it up it's like now I can really start to be who I think I can be it's astounding that you came to that at 21, because I think even after I got sober at 23, I had nothing like that motivation. It was really just, I I sort of realized I was stuck in a trap and, um, you know, I was either going to die or slowly extricate myself from the trap. And so I was only trying to survive in a way. And then, you know, maybe 10 years later, it dawned on me, hey, this is in some ways, much, much better, but it wasn't, it wasn't an immediate thing like that. And I certainly wouldn't have come to the insight. I don't think if I hadn't been, uh, destroying myself. So obviously. And and what was it that took you to kind of get sober, to realize that you had a problem? Was it kind of very apparent to you? Cause like, it seemed like you got on the roller coaster of kind of substance abuse and that this made you feel more liberated, more free, more comfortable in yourself, more full almost. And then how did you come to the realization that this was almost damaging you at one point? Or was it someone external had to come and go, Judy? Yeah, no, it was, it was more than almost damaging me. So yeah, at the beginning, it was liberating. It felt like my, I was expanding as a result of use. And maybe some you know, particular experiences did expand me a little bit. But generally, the trajectory was to get more and more narrow and more and more self-absorbed more and more substance absorbed so that you know by the end all I really cared about was getting off in some way and um so 
therefore I, you know, I was kicked out of three schools. I, and didn't care about my career or education. I was homeless because I didn't care about the rent so much when it came right down to it. I, um, I contracted hepatitis C from sharing dirty needles because, you know, I had my priorities in a different way. Like you say, health was way down there and uh, I hate, I hated myself. So it was really the, the most amazing thing. And you kind of just intuited this. I, all that was true by the time I was, you know, in my early twenties, but I saw my drug use as the solution, not the problem because my life was so miserable. I thought, you know, who wouldn't use, and this is the best part of my life. Just even a short escape. I, that's what I live for. So, and I, you know, all kinds of things. So anyway, I ended up in treatment in the eighties without any intention of quitting drugs. And I thought treatment, it was a drug and alcohol treatment center. It was actually for children because I was so, you know, immature, but um, the, I I thought it was going to be like a spa. I thought, well, what's treatment? I, I didn't have any idea about really much at that time. I think everybody knows now. And it wasn't like a spa. It was more like a boot camp. There were nurses. As soon as I saw the nurses, I knew I was in trouble. Uh, my parents dropped me off in the middle of nowhere. I was from Florida and they took me to Minnesota. And I only so was, agreed your pa- to go. was it your parents that really took you and decided, Judy, enough oh, is enough? My parents. Yeah, who, who were on the verge of divorce. And I didn't know a lot of this, but um, that was kind of a a fluke. We all still think it was a fluke. My mother had been working at it very hard for years and years, but I always did exactly the opposite of what my mother suggested since I was about two. Um, I'm <laughs> better now. I just spent the weekend with her and we, we agreed on a few things. But um, <laughs> now that I'm in my 50s, right? My, my uh, father, uh, who hadn't talked to me in years in about three years really was so painful for him. My situation that his way of dealing with the pain was just to act as if I didn't exist, which I kind of understood um, and was doing myself in a way. Uh, anyway, it was a fluke. He, he uh, offered dinner at the suggestion of a family friend and I hadn't seen him in a while I was a mess. Um, we went out and I was very defensive and self-righteous and angry and just a little wasted. And uh, he said he just wanted me to be happy. And you don't know my father, but he, he's never said that before or since, I don't think. Maybe now a little bit. He's in his 80s. He might suggest that. But really, he had a long list of things he wanted. <laughs> and happiness was at the bottom, but safety and good teeth and, um, you know, your teeth do look good behaving. Well, uh, it's, you know, the video, but he was really into, uh, external things. And so I was shocked and I fell apart. I think I just was so unhappy that hearing that from my dad, uh, opened me up, kind of broke me open. And wow. then I, so I agreed to go to the spa and, The next thing I know, I'm with the nurses and getting diagnosed with hepatitis and, you know, cold turkey, this and that. So it was miserable. And then I went to a halfway house. Um, And so, like I said, it wasn't really that I was looking for my best life. 
I just decided to maybe give life a chance, uh, mostly because I had a tiny bit of curiosity left. I have a lot of curiosity. And I think most, many people like me who develop problems, and not that you guys aren't curious, but um, are driven by an almost uh, uh, reckless curiosity. But in wow. this case, it got me sober. And then I went to grad school because I was going to cure my disease or my disorder and then use again. So, yeah. Um, Gee, so you did that have was- the aspiration to use again? Like even after coming clean, it was like. Oh, yeah. I, I just could not imagine. I was just turned 23 and people were saying, you know, abstinence. And I thought, there's no way I don't want to. I'm. First, I never thought I would live past 35, but I didn't want to even consider not picking up again. And I, I, my specific aspiration, so I loved most drugs. I really loved smoking marijuana, and I thought that was torture to give up. But I thought if I could just drop a little acid on Easter uh, every once a year, I think I'll be okay. So I had all kinds of crazy ideas, but I did, as they suggest, kind of do it a day at a time, mostly out of curiosity and this desire to find a back door. And, um, and then, you know, I realized slowly that there were a lot of things in a way reality was much more interesting than addiction and drug use because in a way, you know, getting drunk is sort of always the same. There's a lot of misunderstandings. There's, you know, a brief feeling of connection followed by a pit of loneliness, at least for me. Um, Cocaine was the same way, but maybe more intense. So it just, uh, it, it began to look like substance use was a dead end. And I was sad about that because it was a dead end that I sort of relished, but. And what age were you at, what age were you at that stage? Cause you were 23 when you went into kind of rehab and then when did your perspective kind of shift that you kind of realized that there was, you know, it's still it? shifting. It's still <laughs> shifting. I would say it wasn't, I, I decided, I don't know why I'm like this, but I am one of these people who can do, I'm not a marathon runner like you guys, let's say that I can do a short stint and then I want to lay around for a while. So I am a sprinter. So I thought I'm going to sprint this for about seven years. That's how long it's going to take me to cure addiction. Even though I, you know, had I said I had a terrible academic record, but I somehow was arrogant enough to think oh, I'll fix it and it'll take well, me seven years. Remarkable sense of, um, focus and belief, self-belief in spite of all the loneliness or the anxiety or the emptiness that you had this sheer sense of purpose that like, I'm going to cure addiction. I am going to go and study this and I'm going to crack the code. I think it's amazing. Isn't that all addicts though? The sheer determination. That, Remarkable. That, you know, focus on yourself. I mean, I think whether you're clean or not, this is a characteristic we have. I mean, I, I can remember being in places, really unsafe situations by myself, you know, dark, big guns kind of thing. And uh, totally, I can do this. I can do it. Or being in police, you know, offices and thinking there's a way out of this. So I think the um, the kind of persistence that's almost insane is, you know, good and bad. <laughs> it's It drove 
me to my knees early, but it also um, eventually, you know, got me a corner office and a, you know, reputable degree and career. Yeah, because your story is really the epitome of the kind of, you know, the perfect transformation where, you know, the the caterpillar transforming into the butterfly, you know, really, you know, the, the superhero story of hitting the lowest lows and then kind of transforming and becoming ambassador for hope and a curiosity into, you know, what are the root causes of addiction and how can I help other people? Like, I, I think we all have that capacity. I really believe in that because I guess my experience is that if, if you would have met me those years ago, you would have thought this woman has no chance. I think no one, I was really, even though I, um, you know, we said my background wasn't that bad. I'm like other people in that, I was not a good bet. Um, And I've seen many of these who have terrible backgrounds and then really are transformed. So I think, I guess I always have that hope. I think there is always hope. Um, And I guess the, the way that was enacted in my life was just one little incremental step at a time, not these great big, uh, you know, uh, firecracker experiences or something, but just plodding along and persisting. And then, uh, you know, and it's not like it's all fairy tale today either, but I do think that's a recipe for um, recovery or for success in other ways. That sense of baby progress, just little incremental improvements. I, I, yeah. I, one one thing I have, sorry to yeah, go ahead. Like that. Uh, but w- one thing I wonder is how much did a sense of purpose drive you from when you came clean and you decided, okay, I'm going to solve uh, addiction. How much do you think having that sense of purpose? Because often my granny used to say, and I held my granny up in such high esteem. She used to always say, a sense of purpose is one of the greatest gifts you can ever have. Don't ever think that's not something small. So, uh, you know, it's something that I often find if you can have that sense of purpose, it really gives meaning to your life and gives a sense of drive and it can often make you stronger than necessarily you actually believe you are. And I wonder, was that hugely influential with you going through addiction and coming out the other side of it? Absolutely. I think if I hadn't had that um, in kind of insane desire, you know, it was irrational, totally. Um, and also the some kind of delusional belief that I could get there, I, I would not have because I, I didn't want to live, really. And so I only was going to live long enough to be able to use. And I figured, what the heck, you know, I might as well kind of die trying. And then I was fully intending to go back to using seven years later. So that was my, that was my plan. Let me take a sip of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even, even you finish your water, even, even then, um, like today, you're a professor of pharmacology and neuroscience. Are those, the, is that, the, did I say the right things there? Yeah. And what, what do those mean? Like, what does that mean? Like, what does the, and, and ha- what is the root? Like, because if your, if your purpose was to try to understand addiction and to cure it, like, what do, what does pharmacology and neuroscience, what do they mean? And what do they like? Yeah. And I also am expert in genetics and behavior genetics. So I, I somehow knew that the problem was in my brain. 
Um, and this is the dominant belief that substance use disorders are brain disorders. They're, it's a form of mental illness where people self-destruct, you know, trying to escape um, with chemicals. And the chemical part is the pharmacology part. So I figured if I could find the switch that was faulty in my brain that made the my pharmacological and behavioral response to drugs so profound, you know, some people got drunk the first time and thought, oh, that's nice. I might do that again. And other people like me got drunk the first time and never wanted to be sober again. Um, so I think I, I was going to find that fault and I thought it might be genetic. It um, be just, you know, some kind of random circuit problem. I knew nothing about neuroscience at the time, but I knew that the way I thought about drugs was different. I can remember people saying things like, you know, well, I have to work this afternoon. So, you know, I'm not going to do this now. And I would think, what, what's your point? You know, it would never occur to me to prioritize anything. So there was, it was sort of a, a brain problem with what I valued and I drugs were from the very start, really, really valuable to me. And uh, I thought I could locate the issue somehow and fix it. And how's it all gone? What, like any bits that like, okay, you, have you, you said there was, there was, there was pharmacology, there was behavioral science and there was neurology. Behavioral gera- genetics. Behavioral genetics. Neuroscience. Which so one of those has been the most like enlightening in terms of for you and your relationship with addiction or substance abuse? What one has kind of yielded the most amount of learnings? Well, I feel like I've learned a lot about all of those. There's, you know, thousands of people around the world working on this problem. So we know particular genetic variants that make uh, someone like me more likely. We know pharmacological responses to drugs differ. So there are big individual differences, but I think the, the largest thing I've learned is that addiction is a consequence of a constellation of these variables and something I totally missed for the first 10 years of my research, environmental variables. So things like stress and your context and your age and your hormonal status, and which is, I think of as environmental because it's outside the brain. Um, But all those things uh, kind of collude to change the risk. It's almost like having, playing a, a hand of poker and you're, but the hand is, you know, 200 cards and, uh, you know, some are making it more likely and some less likely. And so the way they interact, how they inform each other is kind of part of the game. So maybe the quickest way to say that is I'm not sure that addiction is not caused by slightly different constellations of factors in every single substance abuser. So I think we behavior, my point is, is so complex. And, you know, think about your choices at 21. Would you have done that if you didn't have each other? Would I have, if I had stayed at another friend's house that night, would I have gone so over the top. By the way, that friend turned out to be totally normal. So she did not have a problem. She had champagne at her wedding and I think had a successful career and probably still does. So 
you know, there's nothing, there's no single switch. I was definitely wrong about that, naive about that. So, so it's really like, wow. there's, you know, the way people are kind of go nature versus nurture. It sounds like there's a huge amount of like the nature being the, you know, people's innate sense of self and their, you know, the conditions that we all learn as through our upbringing and then nurture being the environment that the, you know, the stage of development that we're at and our tendency for loneliness or detachment and then our mental situation that there's just so many factors that there really is. There's, there could be thousands of variables that any, com- and there's all these combinations of them. So there's so many factors that are applicable. And for anyone who's listening, like, and who's kind of going, and even I think of ourselves, who've got kids that are going to come into teenage years soon. And I'm kind of going, oh my God, like, how do we, how do I equip my children? Like, how do I really equip them to be mindful? And as a parent, how do I kind of navigate this period for my child? Like, what would, do you have any kind of thoughts around that? Because I, I, I remember listening to you when I was doing research earlier, you talking about that if someone drinks as an adolescence, I think that you said they were seven times more likely to develop substance abuse than if they consume alcohol or substances when they're a fully mature adult, like over the age of 23, I think it was. Yeah, so um, lots of stuff there. But one of the innate things is definitely genetics. So what you inherit, if you have any... Um, you know, abuse or depression, you know, substance abuse, I mean, or depression or anxiety in your family are more likely. So it does um, sort of segregate with uh, psychological disorders. Um, But I would say that the biggest predictor is early use. And so you could take someone with very little genetic liability or modest genetic liability And if they start using early, and when I say using, I don't mean sipping, I mean getting wasted, um, then they're much more likely. It's, uh, here's one for you. Um, If you begin before you're 18, getting wasted, your chances really of developing a substance use disorder are about one in four. If you begin after 21, your chances are one in 25. So there's this incredibly steep slope during all of adolescence. And in fact, I said 18, but the earlier, the more at risk you are. And this is really simple from a neurobiological perspective because kids learn everything better. They learn languages better. They learn um, experiences better. Their, their brains literally are like sponges. They're, they're very plastic and malleable. And that's on you know, for design, because they're figuring out who they are, what they're about, where they want to go. And so they need a brain that's going to be really responsive to environmental input and to change its structure and function as a result of that. Whereas if you're 40, you know, your brain could kind of be made out of concrete and it wouldn't (laughs) hurt that much Um, because things are, I'm joking a little bit, but Um, So anyway, kids learn really well, and addiction is a form of learning. And what, as you, I think somebody mentioned this earlier, but the way we learn to become addicted is that the brain is compensating for the drugs. So addictive drugs are pleasurable, for instance, and the brain, um, you know, notes that pleasure. Wow, she drinks this or smokes this or injects this, and she has this big rush. And the brain is so able to adapt, it counteracts all of that to make you eventually tolerant so that the drugs don't work as well and also dependent so that you can't feel pleasure without the drugs. And that's exactly the state I was in. 
But that learning is much more um, quick and profound and complete in young people than in old people. So it's almost like the pleasure trap that when you use as a young kid, your brain releases dopamine and then you kind of almost normalize that level of dopamine. So to get that nat- that release of dopamine, you can't actually get it unless you use a substance that it's almost like over a couple of uses, your brain goes, like you normalize to the higher level. Yeah. So it's even within the first use, the first time I drank, I probably had a big release of dopamine, also a big release of endorphins, which alcohol stimulates and other chemicals that I liked. The brain kind of, uh, you know, my experience of that was joy, but my brain was thinking, wow, this is not great for my survival because why is she suddenly, you know, over the moon? So it begins adapting. It down-regulates dopamine, down-regulates endorphins, even at the first try. Well, the more I did it, the better that uh, became so that eventually my dopamine, let's say, is kind of um, flat and insensitive. You know, now I need much more alcohol and maybe a little Coke just to get a bump, no pun intended, of uh, dopamine. And so then without it, my dopamine levels are depleted. Nothing is worthwhile. And, you know, it, it sounds kind of extreme, but I think this is the core of addiction and it's evident all over the place. I hear from 18 year olds who've been say smoking weed for the last three or four years and who not only don't enjoy it anymore, but they can't stop because they feel really anxious without it. So that's tough. Jeez. We were talking about this this morning. We were only just talking about training because like we don't drink alcohol. And then over the last couple of years like friends have given up coffee and things like this as well and you're kind of going like where does this lead to if you if you have less of these substances like even if they're not drugs like but caffeine is a psychoactive drug you know but there's there's so many different things which you can do you're kind of going okay well there's there's a spectrum of choices and you've probably got like hard drugs at the top end of it and you've got like you know cocaine and heroin and then you've got you know, alcohol and marijuana, and then you've got kind of maybe sugar and coffee and these other kind of things which do really release dopamine. And if you kind of take out all them, well, then you've got like, is your life just grey and boring well, and sex. neutral? Sex, oh, sex, sex yeah, and sex. food, sex oh, and yeah, sex. food. I think yeah, the most food. You got the two. But like, if you're not eating sugar, then you like, I suppose, fat. You'll get pleasure from fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was just a random was a question. There's no question topic. there. It was just like question a random. Question I have is, I, I, I think I heard you describe it really nicely that. When you're drinking coffee, without drinking coffee, you feel many people feel tired because they haven't been sleeping very well. And it's almost like you need coffee not to feel tired. And this, I thought, was a great metaphor to what it is like to to be addicted to a substance that without it, you feel less than you would on a normal day back when you're in homeostasis, that it almost like the drugs bring you down without them. Yeah, that's exactly it. So coffee is a perfect example because I drink coffee every day uh, religiously. I don't wake up in the morning until I have the coffee. Um, I'm lethargic. I can probably not really put a thought together. Um, So once I get the coffee, I feel just right. Um, But I think that this is um, the, you know, kids are especially tuned to meaningful experiences And so they have to find things that provide some juice and sex is, you know, one of those, 
of course. And so is industry. So is art. So is music. You know, anything that is open-ended, I think, and surprising in a way, is what we're sort of designed for. So drugs kind of co-op that neurobiology and they provide the surprise and the meaning or the, the a sort of a semblance of it. And it's really potent and we get to control it. So it's, you know, we can control it because we can deliver the amount we want. We don't have to wait for the girl to say, yes, let's go out. Um, we can just give it to ourselves in the dosage we want. But what does happen is um, that kind of supernatural stimulation coming from drugs is a way to really deafen our sensitivity to meaning and pleasure. And that deafening is much more um, profound when we do it younger. So then it is the case that other sorts of joys don't rise to the surface. I can remember hundreds of times where, you know, I had a choice of something pretty good, maybe going windsurfing with a friend or sitting in my um, hovel, you know, doing bong hits or something. And ultimately the bong won because, you know, I didn't have to depend on the waves or being able to get out of the sea or something. So um, I think though that the other side of this is that what happens when you give it all up? And are, do you, does, you said something like, does the world just become bleak? And well, I think it does for a period. Does it probably oh, does for a period of time? I'll say, I mean, this is why the determination was so critical. It's almost like if we could um, sort of suspend people in a little animated state for a little while, while that bleakness dissipated, because now, funny enough, although I am a coffee addict, so you can see what you think about it, but I think there's so many ways that reality provides, um, I probably sound like an old lady, but uh, reality provides really rich, interesting, open-ended, challenging opportunities that drugs really didn't. I mean, there was, you know, police sirens and stuff, but in a way that isn't so exciting as um, trying to learn a new skill or um, traveling or getting to know somebody really well or a particular poem that really strikes me. I think those, I think we need to pay more attention to what's available just in, you know, the colors of lettuce or um, the bird song, you know, that comes out of nowhere. I think there are, um, this is the big lie of drugs that they're going to make things, they're going to juice it up. They're going to make life more rich. And ultimately they don't make it more rich. They make it bleak without it. So you're kind of a perfect consumer, but I, I guess I'm, I'm more and more of a fan of reality, even though I wanted nothing to do with it for much of my early years. That's, I love that. that's so insightful. Like I really do like, you know, about that there is, and I love, I love everything which you said there. There, there was a, a friend, he's, he's got a teenage son and he has this, he kind of has an agreement with his son. And he said that if you make it to 17 without a drink, I'll, I'll buy you a car. 
And that was his kind of way of going that he's read a lot of research in terms of addiction and says that, okay, well, I need to really incentivize it because I realized that the main risk years, now somehow he picked the age of 17, but from what you've said, it probably means 18. Like he just realized if he can get his son to 18, it's unlikely he's going to become, he's less likely to become an addict. He's less likely. It's funny. I had three kids and I said to all of them, if you make it till 21, maybe I was too ambitious. Then I will buy you a round trip to get anywhere um, wow. you know, and fund your trip. Cause that's, I guess what would be the stimulus for me better than a car. I'd rather walk and get a trip to New Zealand or something. But, <laughs> and um, how did that go? Right? How did they do? Uh, yeah. They all failed. So maybe I should have taken your friend's advice, but if you can, it, so here's, here's my, I'm a little wiser now since it didn't work. I would say, um, that's great. And if it works, terrific. And then continue to incentivize low amounts of using, because even though, you know, one episode is dangerous, it's not nearly as dangerous as 10. So the brain, you know, the repetition is what teaches us. And so less uh, frequent dosing. Here's the other way to say it. If you could wait to develop any kind of habit until your brain is mature, which is about 24, 25, actually, but closer, the better, then you're almost guaranteed not to have a problem. And I thought that would be a great incentive because a lot of times I've missed, you know, uh, just a little bit here or there when I have friends who, you know, I, I can't really enjoy drugs anymore. I have to, I, you know, I think my brain was so, changed that it wouldn't take much for me to be back in the position I was in. So I think, you know, that's some incentive because like you, you hold off just for a little while. It's kind of like that marshmallow test. You know, if you can wait to take the marshmallow, you'll get a thousand marshmallows. Yeah, that's a and, good analogy. And, and what, can, I, can I ask something? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm fascinated to ask you about, and I know it's not necessarily a substance, but screens and phone usage like uh, you you spoke about adolescents and how their brain is forming and how it's so plast there's so much plasticity that it's so open to life and a lot of the kind of pathways aren't formed so there's a lot of kind of open pastures where they can form at whatever way and now with the advent of social media and kind of phone usage to release dopamine i got a like i got a message i got a bang it went bing i got a notification yeah what is it you know there's this natural drug or substance in our pockets and they're hardwired for our own addiction and i just wonder what are your thoughts on this and what's your experience with this with you having three um children 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 and you know i want to say something about the open pastures we're talking about them like they're great but they are hard open pastures when you're an adolescent i mean that's that's scary and it is the most stressful time in our lives being an adolescent because the purpose of adolescence is to form an identity. And that's dang hard work, I think. And it takes failing. It takes trying things that don't work. It takes rejection. It takes, you know, stepping in the cow pods in the open pastures, all that. So I, and I want to go also back to the idea that addiction is about alienation and these uh, you know, it's a whole new world, but people never have to be um, alone in a way, but they also never have to be close. And so if 
the what we strive for, what we really want deep down is connection with ourselves, with the natural world, with other people. This is a way to sort of uh, pretend phones are and virtual connections. You know, we're pretending that we're connected to things, but we're actually, we could be in a room. We could be a brain in a vat, you know, just plugged into, uh, you know, electrical currents. So I think that it's really dangerous. I hear from kids all the time who uh, want to try to put it down and you can tell it's an addiction because when they put it down, what do they do? They're constantly reaching in that pocket, reaching in that pocket, reaching in the pocket. So the only way to put it down is to literally leave it at home, which is good practice. I think a little holiday is great. I do think certainly, undoubtedly, um, the, the use of um, all this uh, technology is changing our brains, probably some for the better and some not. But I do, I think for me, it's important to realize what is the goal of both you know, my personal goals, but also the evolutionary goal. Why is this so satisfying? And I think it's satisfying because we crave intimacy and instead we're getting, you know, kind of uh, social porn. So I don't think it's a great substitute. And I think there is a cost. That's a great word, social porn. I've never heard that in terms of like a cell phone or a mobile phone. Social porn. Yeah, it's because because that's what it is. Like social media and phones, they just give access to porn, to social porn, to fake intimacy, which is what we ultimately crave. And yet, it's hard. We're hardwired for that. So it's it's the ultimate manifestation of Dave's. I, I was just going to ask a question. I was going to say, in terms of your own kids and phones and social media, how did you manage that? And what have your learnings been for anyone listening? Like, what kind of do you have any ideas or thoughts around? when you should give them a phone or not, or what to keep them away from, or do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't feel like I'm the best advice giver because I struggle so much myself with these things. I did try to delay as long as possible. And I was told, I think by two out of the three kids that they were the only person they knew who didn't have a phone by the time they got it, which was at about 14, I think when they were kind of getting some independence. I mean, it is convenient too, because now we know where they are. I have a 19 year old and um, she said, you know, I don't like it that you can track where I am. And I said, well, that's too bad because um, when you pay for your own phone, you don't have to have that. So I tell her, you know, I know where you are. I tell her um, I'll search your backpack and, but you know, she has fair warning. So I don't know. She's pretty good now. So I would say um, we also, as a family uh, traveled and purposely in places where there was no internet to take a little holiday. And all the kids appreciated that. Of course, they, as soon as they got back to an airport, they, you know, were on it nonstop. But I guess, and I also want to say that I've, I've heard from several people from Silicon Valley who don't let their kids have them at all, especially before puberty especially, but they're more um, stringent than I ever was. So I think the people who know about the effects are the most alarmed. So they're certainly not innocuous, but it's also the case that there's benefits and that we can't avoid, uh, you know, it's impossible to not have them. So now I have um, two 
uh, one who's almost 30, one who's almost who's 27, and one who's 19. And the older ones are very um, circumspect about it. So they recognize and they definitely see the the pitfalls. So I think that's the best any of us can hope for. I think it's uh, naive to think we're going to sequester ourselves, really. But we could be educated in the costs and the benefits. And then um, that's easier to do if you take it slow and late, as we said. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Very practical, very honest. Really appreciate that. Um, for, For anyone listening who's kind of struggling with addiction in various different forms and you've come through the other side of it, what advice would you, and I know you said you're not much of an advice giver, but just to throw it out there, uh, would there be any suggestions that you have that helped you in your journey going the other side and going beyond it? Because we're all facing addiction in various different forms, whether it be when we feel down, we turn to chocolate, whether we consistently, whether we, we look alcohol. at our phone too much, whether some people listening are looking at porn, whatever it is, there's, we all experience in various different forms in this spectrum or various different places. And I just wonder, would you have any suggestions or uh, nuggets? Yeah, I can just say for myself that um, it was really important for me to learn that I, it's going to, it's hard. So I, you know, the nice, the thing that's so uh, seductive about any addiction is that you feel like you're escaping. And that's, you know, who who doesn't want to escape? I mean, life is so hard sometimes. And I, I guess I, I don't, think escape is possible, but I think freedom is. So it, as a, I, I sort of lowered my bar that it was going to be hard and I was going to be really as easy as I could on myself about that. So I do things like when the shit hits the fan, I get really kind to myself kind of, you know, like, why are you buying yourself flowers, Judy? You know, you just, the house burned down or something. And I, because I I realize it's tough and I don't want to have to use a substance to comfort myself. I want to use things that really do comfort me and fresh flowers happen to be one of those things. So um, it's going to be hard. Be, treat yourself as well as you possibly can. And um, I also, Part of that for me is is having a community of people who I can be honest with. And so find other people who are on a similar path. And there's zillions of us around the world living kind of better lives as a result of being uh, addicted and then uh, recovering from that addiction. So find those people and grab their hands and, and uh, you know, drink tea. I think it's, uh, you know, if connection is the solution, then that's hard work, but don't dally, you know, get on that. There's no, there's no substitute, but I think, I guess I just want to go back. So one tendency I had in the beginning was I, I, like, for instance, I never, I didn't have a home and I never washed my clothes. So then I, I got, clean and sober. And I thought, oh my gosh, I got to be a perfect housekeeper. You know, I couldn't leave a empty glass of water in the sink overnight because, you know, I don't know what I thought. And then I realized, no, this is not it either. You know, it's uh, it's kind of a big messy 
prospect of facing what is and giving latitude to myself and other people, because um, if it was easy, you know, everybody would do it instead of um, whatever else they're doing. I love that line you said there that you can't really escape life, but freedom is an alternative and lowering your bar and being kind to yourself. I think that's applicable to everyone, whether your your tendency is towards addiction or not, like lowering your bar for kindness and trying to free yourself from the pressures and the pain. You know, as you said, life is really challenging for all of us and it's to lower our bar. And if we're nicer to ourselves, life is just better. More manageable. More yeah. Manageable. Yeah. And can I just say that that message for kids, I wasn't thinking this when I was talking about it. I was thinking of myself, but I think letting kids know that, wow, you know, just living is a tall order these days. I mean, suicide is the biggest cause of death in that young age group, you know, so they know this inside their cells somewhere. So acknowledging that and then, uh, you know, asking what would help You know, do we need to take more hikes? Do we need to uh, get some music lessons? Do we need therapy? Do we need, um, you know, how can, how can we find ways to healthy ways that aren't self-destructive to learn to cope? And I got to, you know, there's not a lot of models for that in some ways. So I'm glad you guys are doing what you're doing and uh, glad to be a part of it. Yeah, you, re- you speak with a lovely wisdom. And part of me wonders, is it because you've, you've felt those depths, those hard, those darker parts of life that it kind of gives you, you speak with, I don't know, it's really lovely there's, to listen there's to. Like there's like an openness and a reality, like, you know, the, it's beautiful. You know, there's almost like there's less veneer and more, you know, more, more the real stuff. Well, that's the, I guess it's the payoff, huh? Yeah. Of living. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask what? Can I ask one final question that just fascinates me? And I know it's probably the stupid question, and I'm pretty certain it's a stupid question. Stupid but it really interests me. Normally, um, most people who who kind of co- go through addiction and they come out the other side, they're they're ne- they're always in recovery. Do you ever reach a point to recovered, like where I'm recovered, like I'm I, I've closed that door and I can have a little small amount of substance and it won't uh, but trigger maybe- me? But it is am I being so stupid saying this or does this thing exist? Or I'm just curious, sheer ignorant curiosity. It's the $20 million question, not only uh, here, but in the, you know, research labs all over the world and governments and social services. So this is a big, big question. My guess is that there are different kinds of um, substance use disordered people. And for some of them, especially if, they start young and quit young, like younger than me, because I don't think I'm in that boat. I have a feeling um, and the one way I can tell is that if people say, don't you just want a glass? You know, don't you want just one drink? Not really. I would like the, I still would like all of it. I don't know why I'm like that. So it's just better. But um, I think probably for some people who start young and quit young or who start late, way past the mature time of the brain. But certainly if you begin young, here's another incentive for your friend's kid. Um, if you begin young and stop around, you know, 30, like, or, you know, late twenties, I think it's, it's unlikely because the brain has been shaped by the drugs. That's how it's developed. Wow. 
Jeez, you're brilliant. Wonderful. I love I, what you do. I, I really do. Uh, you've written a book and you've just released it. I know you spoke about another book that you're Never writing enough. at the moment. I wonder if you could tell everyone about that or tell us about it also. Well, so I, my the first book, Never Enough, is all about uh, the neuroscience of addiction. And that's been really fun. I'm, I'm amazed that anybody read it, but it's great because I get to talk to people like you. And so I, I and I, as I said, I'm not really a long haul person. So I, I was kind of selfish in my initial motivations, but then I found, well, this is a way to maybe help people understand things. And I do believe in education. I'm a professor, you know, this is what I do all day long. So I have three ideas of books, actually four now, but, um, I'm working on a couple of them and I'm taking a sabbatical next year. And I've, uh, the, so I'm excited about all of them. So I I don't think I'm going to live long enough the way I go. I'm a slow worker, but I, um, I want to write one on the adolescent brain development and the particular vulnerability. The data are really compelling. And there's also a lot of new research on epigenetics. We didn't get to touch on, but on the sort of cross-generational effects of using. So one reason, for instance, that there might be such an epidemic of depression and anxiety is all the pot smoking that happened in the seventies. I'm being a little facile, but I think that uh, what we do has impacts that last in our offspring and maybe in our children's offspring. And that whole area of molecular biology is so uh, full of interesting data right now. And it's, it's true if you eat a lot of broccoli and run marathons as it is, if you, um, you know, in a beneficial way, as if you're smoking weed or drinking alcohol, the um, another one I want to write about is why not use drugs. And I want to take really um, kind of, to your audience, uh, uh, just a balanced approach to ask the question, you know, when is drug use maybe beneficial? Because certainly there's so many opportunities and when is it more risky and when is it more innocuous and when is it medicine? So I think there's so much conflicting messaging and uh, I just want to get the data through because it's the case that most drugs at sometimes in most people can be can be okay, can be, you know, beneficial in terms of fun or enlightenment or whatever. Oh my goodness. I want to write one on sex differences, which is my area of research. And I'm also uh, currently working on a project with a friend, uh, David Goldman at the NIH on um, harm reduction. What does it mean? This is a big kind of movement where we just want to reduce the bad consequences from addiction, but try to mitigate it. And it's kind of gets to the point that you were just asking about, you know, can you be a normal user again? And I think, again, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and conflicting data and politics involved in that. So um, anyway, I'm full of opinions. Jeez, you've got a lot uh, of they, cool ideas. There's yeah. a lot of purpose going on there. Too. You really Loads do. Like, and even, even when you start talking about it, you're lit up, like, you know, like you, I, the passion is so visible. Like it really is as well as you can hear your tone picks up. So I regret not asking you more about those topics. Well, we can do it again. Another yeah. time. Yeah. Love to, yeah. love to. And the name of your book again, just for Never. anyone, anyone else who's curious and just didn't uh, catch it. The book that's out is called Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. Brilliant. 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 You're fantastic. Judy, thank you so much. I really love chatting thank with you. you. Yeah, I did Thanks a yeah. lot. Lovely. And well done, Professor of Neuroscience and Pharmacology, Pharmacology and Behavioral Genetics. Congratulations. Good job.
Yeah, thanks. <laughs> right. But no, I, I really lo- I love chatting with you. You're you're gorgeous. You're very pleasant. You. Beautiful. It's lovely. You yeah, guys yeah. too. You guys too. It's wonderful how you play off each other and interrupt each other and compliment <laughs> each other. What a lovely thing to have others like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're great. identical twins, so it's been. I, I, I think that's part of the reason why we probably gave, had the the sense of the security to give it up so young was that we had each other and that close yeah, connection. There was always going to be another wonders. character who was going to follow you, and there was when there's you know two of you. Well, then you're grand, like. Yeah, it doesn't always go so well. So you're lucky too. That's great. Yeah, really it could have gone the other way. Yeah. Maybe not the other way, but I think competition and, uh, you know, trying to individuate can be tough, but it looks like it worked beautifully. So I've enjoyed this and I, I like your podcast a lot. So congratulations on having such a um, helpful and I think uh, warm and nourishing program. Yeah, oh, we yeah. love it. We're having so much fun. It's such a right. blessing to get to do. And you're 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 so lovely to talk to. If you're ever in Ireland, please come hang out. I am. Leave, I've leave been to Ireland world. a couple times. It's one of the places my family goes off the track, and I love it. I I really am dying to get back. My husband's kind of not a big traveler, but he loves Ireland, so he'll always wow. go to Ireland. Cool. We're just yeah. south of Dublin in genuinely. We've got cafe we've got a well we had cafes now we've got one cafe and farm and shop and product you know food and product like we, we've got a really fun oh, yeah. world yeah, yeah. No, we I all swim in the sea at sunrise and we like there's there's a great yeah. community our our world is very rich in humans and it's really fun yeah, connection yeah the irish people are yeah lovely lovely yeah so i can't wait to get back never yeah. know <laughs> Come hang out. Come hang out. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having me. Thanks for being Lots of love. Bye. 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 Mind yourself. Bye. 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 That was amazing. I absolutely adored chatting to Judy. What a kind, wise, beautiful lady. Yeah, there was serious wisdom there. And I'm going to take away, and I'm going to go back and listen to this line where she said about, you know, um, escapism is not really possible. And she put it at the nth degree in terms of drug addiction, but freedom is possible and lowering the bar on bar to ourselves and being kinder like her thing of buying cut flowers for herself and just being really kind to herself because life is really hard I thought that was just such a beautiful line Mm. so uh, yeah I hope you really enjoyed that she's got a book out called Never Enough so if you're curious to learn more please do check that out and we'll have more details in the show notes and we've got our alcohol free challenge it's starting February the 28th so if you're interested you'll find more details on our website thehappypair.ie and it's all about supporting you for the full month of March we're doing it with Andy Ramage who's a really cool he's the godfather of alcohol free and it's not about forcing you to give up alcohol it's just taking a break for it for a month and seeing how you go and re-establishing your relationship so yep. yeah so thanks a million for making it this far we are most grateful and as we always say if you enjoy this you can g- give us a comment or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and give a review I'll We'd give love a five that. star review and if you didn't yeah, like and no one likes a whinger Ooh. oh good that's really funny Steve <laughs> <laughs> Steve loves saying that and, uh, I think they're saying cool when they say that yeah you're so cool Steve and then uh, um, if you want to share it to Instagram stories we'll reshare to get the word out there because yeah. I think I think Judy's message is so important yeah um, yeah. thanks Mel bye 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 bye